So it, it would be great, I think, for the audience if um, each of you could answer the questions that we're going to pose. We obviously want the entrepreneurs here to get a better sense of your thinking um, as principals at your funds. So why don't we just start with the first question, which is, as funders, what are you excited about right now? Is there a particular area or is there an investment that you've made recently in a company where it just, you think it sort of represents the cutting edge of the future, or you think it's the new direction? Um, so my fund, FICA, uh, or a seed fund, um, and I think that definition of seed has uh, been shifting over time, but we do some pre-seed and post-seed, but basically everything pre-series A. Um, we're predominantly an enterprise software and SaaS fund. Uh, I would say five years ago, if I wanted to raise a fund in this sector specifically, uh, it would have been very difficult for, for us to raise this fund given enterprise software was not synonymous with LA. I mean, I think LA is known for commerce and ad tech and entertainment, et cetera. I think today the enterprise software space is really exciting. Um, and we focus on very old school industries. Uh, so we do stuff like supply chain and taxes and commercial appraisal. Um, and we're really excited about that. And it's all based on the thesis around um, data-heavy companies. That's where my operating background comes from. We have a very long view on data-oriented companies. And we're basically, FICA is just an extension of those sets of beliefs. Well, we invest in both consumer and uh, enterprise-focused companies. Um, you know, we're not uh, heavily thesis-driven. So, I, you know, it's hard for me to say I'm excited about blockchain or AI or I'm you know, hunting for the, one of those companies. We, I think, look very broadly and look opportunistically just in the sense that I think our, you know, our belief is that everything is getting software enabled. You know, inter, uh, information technology has gone from being an industry, a vertical industry that was headquartered in Silicon Valley for decades and used to ship their product out, right? Shrink wrap software and then SaaS and, you know, other enterprise software. And now it's gone from being a vertical industry to being more of a you know, what economists would call a general purpose technology like steam or electricity that's affecting every industry. And that's what excites us. We see opportunities emerging, you know, in enterprise software that uh, hadn't been interesting to venture capitalists before, you know, like Peter mentioned, Service Titan. They make software for, you know, plumbing contractors and HVAC contractors and, you know, field service kind of trade industries. And there wasn't really good software for that before, but now, you know, industries like that or verticals like that are getting software enabled as everything gets software enabled. And that's really interesting to us. It, it doesn't necessarily, you know, we like the sort of bottom-up disruption that, that technology uh, drives sometimes, but sometimes it's just uh, enablement and you can build a very, very large business just enabling industries that until now have been paper, pencil, you know, uh, you know kind of offline workflows and, and we love that too. I think in a similar vein to what Eric just mentioned, there's a lot of industries that are amazingly resistant to or have been resistant to technology to move forward. And when you find those, and it's always surprising to me, like every year that goes by, it's like, wow, another huge industry that hasn't gotten tech enabled yet. Uh, real estate only very recently started to care about technology. And that's something that uh, in many ways benefited from there's a, a company in sort of the San Diego, uh, Santa Barbara region that... I forget the name of that it took 17 years, but over the last three years has trended like crazy in terms of helping real estate. Uh, trucking, which we both have investments in, you know, is an industry that's been woefully behind in terms of using any sort of technology to cure both financial and world-based problems that are created. There's about 29 round trips to Mars driven empty by trucks every year. I mean, enormously wasteful, just silly. 
and technology is a way to cure that while curing the financial problems from it and the carbon and all the rest of it. But, you know, this is sort of how I think about the world. NEA is the world's largest venture firm, at least for the moment, about 20 billion of committed capital. I've only been there seven months. So when I think about companies that I get excited about, there's so many in the portfolio that I love, but I'm on my quest to find the next one. I just spend all my time trying to find entrepreneurs that make me say, wow. And I don't really care what category. There's often a SaaS component, but it doesn't have to have it. There can be a recurring component, but it doesn't have to have it. It's just someone that shows me a view of the world, a man or woman that walks up with an idea. It's like I never realized that that is a tremendous and exciting opportunity that can be limitless in its size, which is sort of my ultimate goal. How do I find limitless opportunities? Um, I think actually that's a good transition point to the next question I was going to ask. Before we started the panel, we were talking in a small group here about um, Eric methodology or lack thereof, you know, what is it that as a funder you're looking for in founders and entrepreneurs? Um, I think, Ben, you just touched on that, but maybe if we could hear from each of you, setting aside the question of the product that you would be investing in, what is it that you're looking for from the entrepreneurs and the founders who are going to be driving the business? Well, maybe I'll start to make it easy. There's five things I want in any investment I make that I care about a lot. People, people, people a great idea and a huge market if it works. I want phenomenal people, but if I don't like the idea, I don't care. I have tried really hard to invest in phenomenal people with bad ideas and it has never worked out for me. Other people have had great luck funding companies which later pivot, hasn't worked out. I guess I'm just missing something in that space. As to the people and the characteristics they want, I assume a pretty high level of intelligence. I assume a really good idea or I wouldn't have gotten involved in the first place. I assume a huge market. I think the only secret to entrepreneurial success and the thing that I always want to believe in is tenacity. You know, if, if you are willing to quit, you are going to. It's just ridiculously difficult. Before I became an investor, I was an entrepreneur for 25 years. It took me 24 years to raise my first million dollars, and then I was able to take the company public. But that was a 25-year grind. And no one should ever pretend that reading TechCrunch or Quora or watching cool videos will teach you that much about what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur is one of the single hardest jobs known to humankind. There's many parts of life that can be worse. I'm not saying that people don't suffer in other ways, but in terms of a business, there is, you are ultimately responsible to all your customers every single day. Your customers will, con will say they're gonna contract with you and then not. They will, you'll spend eight months on something and then have it all fall apart because somebody got fired. You'll stare into the valley of death because you're about to run out of money. It's an incredibly difficult life. And so if you're gonna live that life, I need to believe that you're gonna chew nails, run through walls, other little hackneyed phrases that show me that you will be able to fight through diversity to a point that is almost inhuman because it will take that for you to get out to the other side. If you don't have that, then you, know, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur in the first place, so I'm probably not funding you. Yeah, I mean, we tend to focus a lot on people and markets. Um, I, I, I totally agree with Ben. I mean, I think tenacity, resiliency, endurance, you know, whatever you want to call it. People talk a lot about grit now. Grit is sort of a trendy word, but I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's really true. It, it really is hard to build a company from scratch. And I think um, that is probably the single most important thing to us. I mean, I don't care where you went to college. I don't care if, if you went to college. I don't care, you know, necessarily where you worked before. Um, it really is, uh, do you have some insight, you know, some unique point of view uh, on a market, preferably a really large market opportunity uh, that can, you know, sustain a business that is of the scale that makes sense as a venture capital investment. And that's sort of a whole separate conversation, like what, what's a good venture investment and what's not. But, um, but uh, 
you know, if, if it's a, a market and an opportunity that we're interested in and you have a unique point of view and perspective on that market and we believe that you have the, the grit, resiliency, whatever, the, the mindset. People talk a lot about kind of growth mindset as well. There's a woman at Stanford University, a psychology professor, who wrote a book, um, you know, called Mindset about sort of growth mindsets and be, the, having the resiliency to keep trying after failing things and viewing that as a challenge or as interesting, not as a, you know, not as a reason to quit. Um, it's, it's a lot to us about, you know, sort of uh, personality and, and mindset uh, versus like, you know, pedigree. Yeah, I can't agree more. I mean, I think ultimately for the founders out there, um, all of us make only a handful of investments a year and we see so many. Um, and there are many reasons we say no. We look for all sorts of reasons to say no. Um, and I think it's off the, the few that we do, it's often when you sit across from them and there's really a story that connects with us. Um, and it's that sort of magical moment where you hear the founder's pitch like, I'm, I want to solve this. I want to go through the 20 year journey. I'm maniacal about solving this and this is why and why I want to do it now. Um, it clicks and then from that moment, like I start feeling uh, this sort of euphoria of like, I have to be part of this. I want to be part of your journey. Uh, I will support you at all costs type of thing. Um, and those are rare moments that happen throughout the year, but I think a lot of founders, uh, when they pitch, they feel like, you know, we really have a specific reason of saying no. Most of the time, it has very little to do with you, actually. Um, so often when you hear a no, I would say persist and keep pitching if you really believe in what you're doing, because there's so many reasons we say no that I think often you will actually never know the real reason we say no. Uh, so not to pivot to the negative, but I just want to pick up on something you said, Eva. So you said most of the time when you say no, it doesn't have anything to do with a founder. But can you come up, uh, can you share with the audience, um, and this for the entire panel again, some examples of mistakes that have been made by founders that really put you in a position where you felt like you had to say no? Um, or that you thought sent the company in an entirely wrong direction. I, and, you know, be as specific as you can without violating confidentiality, because I think that's where people get a lot of learning and education. I, I can go. I mean, I think um, there are times, I think it's maybe a little bit different for each of us. I think, Ben, for, focus on Series A, and Series A and Bs require more metrics and probably a longer uh, period in getting to know you. Um, it's all about building trust uh, with the, with, uh, the investor um, and it goes both ways and I think anything that is done along the way, that process where you break that trust or put that trust sort of in question is when things fall apart. So most of the time, even if I feel like uh, an aha moment, I'm really excited, I get that magical moment, most investors, that moment sort of go like decays over the, the weeks and months that we get to know. And that's just how people are, because um, we're looking for reasons to be like, oh yeah, now I'm kind of worried about that, I'm more skeptical about that. So I think whatever you do is like making sure you don't break that trust by overestimating and lying about numbers, um, taking feedback personally. There's lots of things. Uh, the way you're communicating, taxing us too much during the process and all that, all those various parts that where we're like, hmm, do I want to work with this person for 10, 20 years? Um, so, just some quick. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there are a million reasons to say no, always, right? I think, um, you know, when I first started doing investing professionally, uh, you know, there was someone I talked to who'd been doing this for a long time who said that saying no is, you know, really easy. There are always a million reasons to say no. It's, you know, the hard thing is finding the right ones where you should say yes. 
Um, and I think usually when we say no, uh, you know, it's, it, can be a num it can be any variety of things, and sometimes it's really mundane stuff. It's not something like the founders lied to us or they were dishonest or something. Sometimes it is that, and then it's really easy. But, um, but you know, often it's, you know, when we say yes, it's sort of a combination of things where it's hitting on all cylinders, at least for us, where, you know, we really connect with the founders. We, you know, we believe in the market opportunity. We believe in the way they're approaching it. We feel like we could work well with them. So it's, it's really, you know, it's kind of more why do we say yes more than why do we say no, because we, we honestly, we meet thousands of companies a year or we see thousands of companies and meet, you know, meet hundreds or thousands of companies a year. So um, really it's, it, it's just those unique situations where we feel like it's a great fit for us and we really believe in the people and the opportunity and the market and, and those are the times that we say yes. You know, we could literally do an hour panel on just this. I mean, I have so many things I could share here. Um, I'll echo something, you know, it takes a hundred things to get to yes, it only takes one to get to no. It's not perfection, it's just, it just takes that one thing that tips you over and you're like, I'm out. Because we will all see a tremendous number of companies. I figured out that I, at a minimum, see 1,200 pitches a year. And that's probably a pretty low number. And I will currently fund zero to one, zero to two companies a year. So the conversion rate is very, very, very low. Um, some of the things that I would emphasize, trust is an absolute with me. I'll tell you a very specific story. I had, as a seed investor, I had somebody pitch me a really phenomenal concept for a new type of education marketplace before there was such a thing as an education marketplace. And I always used to say, look, I can't get to yes in one meeting, I can get to no in one meeting, or I can get to I want to spend more time with you. And if I get to I want to spend more time with you three times, I'm probably going to fund you because I'm a seed guy and at that point in time. So first meeting, really excited about his idea. Second meeting, still really excited about his idea. I happen to close by check. I like to write a check. I like to buy you a glass of wine. I like to toast. This is Ben Narison, not NEA speaking. It's just how I always did my investing. So I had decided I was going to fund this guy. So I set up my third meeting and I had my check in my pocket. And I sat down and I was like, um, so I just had a couple more questions. I just wanted to know how that contract, uh, how's it going with so-and-so? He's like, oh yeah, that didn't work out. It's like, huh, look at my notes on my iPad. So you told me you had a contract with so-and-so and you were rolling it out. Well, it was more of a conversation than it was a contract. It's like, oh, okay, I get it. That's no problem. Listen, I wanted to see you face-to-face -face because I'm going to pass, and I want to do that out of courtesy to you right here at this table. That company's now worth about a billion seven. But that founder got fired, and I've never fired or said no to or vetoed a founder. Well, maybe once I tried, and it didn't work, and I should have because the company's out of business. We can talk about that one because that was a huge mistake that was made that killed the company. He didn't listen to advice. Not that advice should always be listened to. But, you know, I look at that decision, and it's a really hard one for me. I don't have the capacity to do business with somebody I can't trust. It will be a seven- to ten-year journey. I haven't lied since I was a teenager. If you can't be straight with me, I can't help you. You know, it's not about this round. The only round that really matters is the last one. The valuation you get on the very last round, the ownership you have is what your net worth is going to be. Along the way, you have a job, a really, really difficult job. So if you raise money from me, if you trick me, there's an there's a accelerator-like organization that spends a lot of their energy. It's not represented here, by the way. These are great people. Um, helping their entrepreneurs understand game theory. You know, they, to them, it's just a game. It's just how do you trick or, or negotiate with, you know, let me just show you the same eight slides that the last 2,000 other people have showed you, and how do you basically maneuver to get the optimal valuation, the optimal round? The self-inflicted wounds that creates is ridiculous. I was actually, and I'll use one more specific example. I was sitting with some entrepreneurs I was considering out of this organization, and I said, look, I'm, a, I'm not going to pay your price. 
I'm going to be willing to invest, but I'm going to be willing to pay less. Because you've told me how valuable I can be to you. Here's what I've heard from every company in your organization for the last eight years. You know, we're massively oversubscribed, but we wanted to meet with you because you seem great. And we only want the most valuable people around us because that's very important because you're going to be so material. And then you take my money and I never hear from you again. It literally happens most of the time. And they both had these huge smiles on their face because it's what they've been trained to do. And it is all blatantly BS, and it destroys the relationship from the very beginning. So in that sort of instance, it takes me dramatically more time with the entrepreneur just to, to scrape away the paint. I think of all the layers of, excuse me, bullshit as paint I have to scrape away. At the end of the day, there's going to be two human beings sitting across the table from each other in board meetings for 10 years. And when the times get tough and you want my support, I want to give it to you. But if you've in any way misrepresented Oh, I said that was the last one. I'll give you one last. I had an entrepreneur call me once and said, I'm really sorry, I have to tell you something. It's really bad news. We missed payroll. It's like, wait, wait, I'm sorry. In the past tense, you missed payroll last week? There is zero chance you didn't know this was a problem for at least a month. Yeah, but I thought, and I was like, I, I don't care what you thought. What am I going to do now? Would you, this is pre-NEA. Do you want me to go back to my partners and say, hey, I just got surprised by an entrepreneur who ran out of money, didn't bother to mention it, missed payroll, and he would like us to cover it. Who do you think is going to support that? Good news takes care of itself. Give me the bad news ahead of time. I'm not saying every investor acts that way because there are people that are scared of their investors and I hope nobody I've ever invested in feels like that. But I think not being transparent with your investors is the single biggest mistake you can make because you end up in situations that are going to cause you pain over time and that pain can be critical, fatal, life-ending for you as an entrepreneur. So the statistic you mentioned, the 1,200, pitches that you see a year, which is probably a low number, and then you invest in one or two. I'd be interested to hear from all of you how you even find the 1,200. How do you decide to spend your time with those companies? Um, I realize there's, there, everyone will have a different filtering system, but I'm sure everyone here would like to hear, how do you think about allocating your time? Where are you finding your prospects? What's the best way to communicate with you and your funds? Do you prefer to make direct contact or receive direct inquiries? Do you prefer to rely on trusted sort of partners in the community and advisors? It would just be helpful to hear about that. So you gave me the easy out at the end there. How is it best to communicate with you? I set up a site called pitchben.com so that anybody anywhere in the world could pitch me an idea. Uh, it is you pitch me a video in one minute and I guarantee you not immediately, I will give you back one minute of candid filterless feedback of whatever I think. I might be wrong, but I won't pretend. If I don't like the idea, I'll tell you why, and I'll be respectful. But I do prefer face-to-face. -face. Um, I always prefer, and I think everybody does, the trusted introduction by somebody that already knows me, that I've either funded in the past, or a fellow investor, because they already understand the filter. Um, everybody's different. I tend to be a lot more lenient than any of the other partners I've come across, not just at my firm, but pretty where, I mean, I know over 300 VCs, and, I don't know anybody that's willing to take as many meetings as I do, which I think is probably a flaw. I take too many. Uh, I come to events like this because, assumedly, not so I can talk about all these things that I believe. You can listen or you can watch them online. But afterwards, some people will come up and talk to me about what they do, and that'll be great. You know, I, I will have to... Your job and mine are very similar in a way that's somewhat surprising to me. It took me a long time to learn this. An entrepreneur is going to have to kiss a thousand frogs to get the money they need. And a VC is going to have to kiss a thousand frogs to find the one they want to fund. And it's no different. 
And by the way, when I find the one I want to fund, it's never like, oh, so graciously they deign to take my capital. It's not like, oh, thank you so much, Ben, for walking over this large check. We're just so pleased. Let us give you a large percentage of the company. Inevitably, it's me and four other people chasing that entrepreneur to try to get the deal done. And then I'm the one saying, oh, you should take me, the same way that the entrepreneurs say that same thing to us. So, you know, I'm a volume guy because I think quantity leads to quality. And eventually that will wear me down so much that I'll have to change. But for now, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a lot of investors have very elaborate, you know, rules on this or thoughts on this that you have to be introduced by someone they already know or some, you know, someone they trust. I mean, I think that's a, um, we're, we're fine with people getting introduced to us. We're fine with people contacting us directly. Uh, for our accelerator program, we actually have, you know, like a lot of accelerator programs, we have an open application process and we have thousands of companies apply through that uh, every year. So we're kind of okay with people contacting us any way they want to, but I think it's just human nature that if you do get someone to introduce you, you might rise above the noise. Or if you figure out a way to get to someone, it's not that we, you know, we don't trust anyone or don't want to talk to anyone who isn't introduced to us directly, but we just get so much email and so many pitches and so, many, you know, so much volume that we can't reply to everyone who emails us, unfortunately. I wish I could, but there just aren't enough hours in the day. And then we can't um, you know, pay the same amount of time or energy to every person that emails us, you know, uh, again, just because we can't. So we have, to, we have to triage and have to filter. And one of the ways, I think, to rise above, you know, some of the noise is to get an introduction from someone that we know or a company that's already in our portfolio. But we're, at, but we're also fine with people, in, you know, introducing themselves to us directly. We have our emails on our website. We have the application process for the accelerator. So we, we try to be very open to it and don't have any real specific you know, it's not that we would only invest in a company that comes through a, a warm intro. We've invested in, you know, companies that just emailed us cold. So, anyway, it's fine. Yeah, for us, in looking sort of at our past, uh, the deals that we've done, if you look at it, most of it has come through some sort of trusted network. Um, like Eric, like I try to open, well, I, I try to open every email that gets sent to me. And if it's written in a way that, um, and we could talk about how to write emails, but in a way that's creative and short and, uh, there's great clarity in the email. Most of the time, I will actually respond, like 95% of the time, I try, try to respond. If it's just, I could tell the email was like sent out spam to like 100 investors and those I tend to ignore. Um, I know how hard it is, having been a founder myself. Um, the trouble today is that there's founders all over the country, all over the world, and a lot of them don't have networks. And it's hard to be, you know, get a warm intro. If you're in Ohio, you might have a great idea, but like, how do you get somebody that might know Eric to come through? Um, so we're trying to rethink some of those processes to open the aperture for other folks that are not in the valley and not in the sort of the, the club. Um. Let's, let's leave it open after this. Uh, for, say three questions. Oh, the audience. Can I ask them one more question, please? Oh. Okay, you're very straight. All right, the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Sir. Uh, a couple of times, 10, uh, 25 years, as you mentioned, 10 to 20 years, 7 to 10 years. Um, so in clarity, I spent, yeah, so the question was, you heard seven to 10 years, you heard 10 years, you heard 25 years. For clarity, I spent 25 years as an entrepreneur, many different businesses, not one. Um, and then how that aligns with or doesn't align with venture capital cycles and their seven-year term. The reality is that if, if I speak to traditional venture capital and I'm representing the only 
sort of classic series A, firm versus seed. So remember, there's different messages coming across here. And so it does take longer when you start at pre-seed than when you start at seed than when you start at A. But one, venture firms are typically done in a 10-year baseline, now stretching sometimes to 12, and there's often a 12 to 15-year total for extension at the end. So it is taking much longer. One of the reasons it's taking much longer is there's so much more capital available that people are not going public. And they're just choosing to take down massive amounts of money from anybody. Like, what was the deal that was just done today with T. Rowe Price, you know, for yet another massive amount of cash. So it's, the way I think about it is, for an entrepreneur, it's going to take you a seven to ten year journey to get to the point of having the material opportunity ahead of you that you want. Seven to ten years to an IPO, seven to ten years to a massive exit outcome opportunity. Remember that one thing that can vary very much by every investor and that you should think about a lot is what does the investor need? So, you know, I'm a very fortunate to be involved in what is currently a 3.5-ish billion dollar fund. I very much want to return that fund. Every investor wants to return their fund. To do that would make me, if I was able to achieve it, probably the best investor of my generation because that would mean I, don't, I can't even do the math. I mean, wow, that would be just like a $20 billion IPO and I get six and I get a multiple on the fund. So realistically, and I'll be happy if every return I get is only a billion dollars to the fund and then I'll be doing better than I've ever done. But net-net, if that's my bar, that I want to believe you can return a billion dollars to the fund, that's a certain size of outcome and opportunity. Different types of outcomes take different amounts of time. You know, there's a lot of ways, and I guess I would, we didn't talk about this, but I'll stress one thing. Venture is not the right source of capital for every business. In fact, it's the wrong source of capital for most businesses. There are a lot of great businesses that can be built and create personal wealth that you're far better off having more creative, limited amounts of capital from people with a lot of different exit opportunities and you know the the presentation before about SaaS sales was a great example of that you know someone bootstraps up does better with a million dollars gets up to 25 million in revenue and sells for 340 wow that's phenomenal for that founder but net net if you're in a billion dollar plus fund it's not material to the partner that invested in you so you're going to have some challenges other questions I feel like the funding space is pretty hot right now, but where do you guys see going in the next three to five years? Is it close to the end of the cycle, or is it still a long way to growth to go? For venture capital funding, you mean? Sure. Uh, the question was, you know, funding cycle is pretty hot right now. Uh, where do we see it going in three to five years? I mean, venture capital for, you know, pretty much ever has been cyclical, like, like a lot of things are cyclical. So I, I think, you know, I think it'll remain cyclical. You know, I think it's going to, you know, we're at somewhere probably close to the top of the market and it's been pretty hot for a while. So I imagine at some point it'll uh, come back down. I don't know how much it'll come back down. You know, I think we're in a, in a weird place where, um, you know, we're, we're starting to, I think, uh, move into a period of time where technology is affecting every industry, every, you know, uh, part of society, you know, consumer life, day-to-day -day life, that maybe, maybe that, you know, sort of changes the cyclicality a little bit, but I think for, for the time being, there's a lot of capital out there right now. People have raised, lots of people have raised very large funds. There are more venture funds than there ever have been. Uh, so I think there's just a lot of capital out there right now. So for the time being, for the next few years, there's going to be a lot of money that gets invested. Uh, and we'll see how returns are, you know, over the next, you know, three to seven years and then uh, see what that cyclicality looks like. I mean, historically, it's been, you know, it's been this part of the cycle has been that 
uh, venture capital returns get really good and then people throw lots of money into venture capital and then there's too much money in venture capital and then returns go down because it's overfunded. And then returns go down and people pull their money out and then there's not enough money in venture capital and returns go back up again and, and then people pour money back in, right? And so it goes and that's part of what drives the cyclicality. But, you know, again, I think technology is, we're, we're, moving, we're, you know, we're moving into a phase in history where technology is so pervasive and advancing so quickly and in impacting all of society and industry that, you know, it's hard for me to say, frankly. I don't know where, I don't know exactly where it all goes. So thank you. We're going to end this, but thank you very much. Appreciate it.